It's time for Heat Wave Sports. Sit back and relax as you take a tour around the world of sports each and every Saturday and Sunday night. And now, your hosts for Heat Wave Sports, Tim Unglesby and Tom Barton. FM 1340 AM. It's the Super Sunday night as we wrap up a lot of the week in review. And heck, there's plenty going on in the world of sports, including on this beautiful, beautiful warm Sunday in Las Vegas. Tim Unglesby and Ryan with you here on the Lotus side of things. And Tom Barton taking a well-deserved night off. So we bring in the pinch hitter, the, the utility guy, the man that's always available and radio's most popular host guest host around this town at least and across the country he's on some national stuff as well my good buddy mr chris win chris always a pleasure to have you on heat wave sports my man tim always good to join you of course on a sunday night or any weekend night for that matter and of course uh, as you pointed out no shortage of action right no shortage of stuff that we're going to be able to banter about as we dive into all things hoops hockey, baseball, golf, and beyond, my friend. You know, during the, uh, right before we got on the air, we were we were jabbering a little bit, and I did announce last night on the show, but I'm going to reannounce it tonight for the listeners that didn't hear, because I'm a proud papa in that my son uh, won the 2A state baseball championships yesterday over at Bishop Gorman, so the Meadows High School a place where you did some some PA action for the football team this year. They win the two-way Nevada State Baseball Championships. Uh, credible credible season for them. They uh, lost two of their star players during the year. Went through the season playing, you know, 5A, 4A, 3A teams to, to load up to get some experience. They got whacked in a tournament in San Diego where there's a lot of good baseball teams out there. But coming down the stretch, they were able to put it together. They get in the regional, Chris, just a week ago losing the first game, go into the loser's bracket, win their way through, come into the States. They got to play at Las Vegas Ballpark on Thursday. They were at CSN Friday where they did lose a, a finals, uh, semifinal matchup that put them back in the loser's bracket. And then yesterday at Bishop Gorman, they actually beat that same team in Yearington High School out of Northern Nevada. They beat them twice yesterday to win the, win the championship. So, so th- let me just read off the, the Proud Papa stats here. So yesterday... My boy, Aiden, he was a starting pitcher in the championship game. He went five innings, no runs, three hits, seven strikeouts. And, oh, by, oh, by the way, with the stick, Chris, inside the park home run, mm-hmm. two RBIs. They mercyed him 10 nothing in that title game. Just an, an incredible experience. And, and the reason I bring it up is because I know you have a, a past in, in um, prep sports growing up, not only in high school but, but college. We were talking about you know, levels of play, because obviously Basic won the 5A baseball title, and they're not at that level. But at the end of the day, Chris, don't we always say it, it counts regardless of the uh, status behind where the school plays? No question about it, right, Tim? And it's always that much more important when it's close to home and when it's personal. 
and that's the case with you, of course, with yourself and Aiden. So uh, really cool to see or hear that, and uh, congrats to him as well as uh, the, the the squad there from from Meadows, where I had a great opportunity, yes, to do some uh, public address of some football action back in uh, the fall. So I've got a little little spot in my heart for that squad out there in uh, Summerlin. So pretty cool to see that that goes down that way. And I appreciate, appreciate you guys, not only as friends, but professionals that you, Brian Feldman, uh, Tommy, our good friend, Ron Natty, we're all in a group text and I kept you guys updated. I hope I wasn't blowing you up too much, but you know how it is, man. Like you said, it's uh, personal and it was just an exciting, exciting couple days for me. Proud Papa time, man. Never, never anything wrong with that. And it's always good to see uh, your friends and to have their, have their kids have some success. And that's exactly what was the case with, uh, with that team. Well, we got plenty to talk about tonight. You you always have your ear to the ground when it comes to all sports, no, not only just locally, but but across the, across the world when you really want to talk about it. But we're going to concentrate on, on the major three tonight. Let's start in the NBA, Chris, where this afternoon the Golden State Warriors pretty much put a firm death grip on this West final series against the Dallas Mavericks, a 109-100 win on the road in Dallas and, and essentially a close game other than in the third quarter where it seemed like Golden State pushed it and, and got a nice comfortable lead and then just kind of, kind of, you know, hung on there in the fourth quarter, got dicey at, at points, but they were always hit, able to hit a big basket. And I think when you look at this series, Tommy had brought up a good point a couple weeks ago. If the best player on the court is Luka Doncic, not Steph Curry, that's okay. Because at the end of the day, the Golden State Warriors, Chris, have the better team. No question about it, right, Tim? You're talking about a team with balance across the board. And this uh, latest iteration of the Golden State Warriors, yes, they won a bunch of titles, obviously, back in the early 2010s and then beyond. But and there were some, there's obviously still some key pieces that are still there when you're talking about Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green. But it's the younger guys, right? It's the newer additions that really have stepped to the forefront. And that was the case today. As, as, as Wiggins just had a monster type of a game. You're talking about 27-11 from Wiggins. And uh, Kevin Looney, look, this is a guy who, you know, only nine points, but he still had 12 boards in this game. And so he was a big factor as well to be playing 29 minutes. And, uh, you know, look, Jordan Poole has been a guy who's, uh, other than this game, has really been able to get into uh, high double digits and be extremely efficient offensively. And he's been big for them. Uh, only 10 points in this game, but what really wasn't needed to step up huge because, you know, you had your, your textbook game from Steph Curry, who goes for 31 and 11, and then Clay, of course, chips it with 19. So this is a, a pretty impressive win by the Golden State Warriors on the road because I was completely on the other side, Tim, completely, mm-hmm. both from a total standpoint as well as the team standpoint. I had Dallas, but I thought Dallas, a uh, team that plays definitely better when they're at home. At least they have been throughout most of the playoffs. It just wasn't the case today. As they were not able to get things really churning offensively. And uh, they're, they're a team that relies heavily on, you know, some of their supporting cast. You, talk, you talked about Luka Dockich and obviously Brunson as well as uh, Dinwiddie have been some key guys for them, right? Well, you know, Finney Smith ends up with uh, just nine points in this game. And then Bullock, who was a, was a big-time factor in game two, despite the fact they weren't able to win that game. 0 for 10 from the field, Reggie Bullock in this game today, including 0 of 7 from downtown. 
that's not going to get it done, and that's a, a huge red flag for the Dallas Mavericks as they go down 3-0 in this series. And it looks like, uh, you know, all is everything is done except for the crime, basically, in this one. It was a good season for the Dallas Mavericks, and it looks like 52 wins is where they're going to land when it comes to the end of this NBA season. Check this out, Chris. Beginning of the season, and I've, I've followed NBA much like you have your whole life, and mm-hmm. um, you and I both have had talks about how the game is completely uh, changed, right? And, and it's not necessarily that I'm complaining about it changing because everything changes, but the caliber of basketball isn't what I grew up in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s enjoying. But I, I've dealt with it because it's just something we do as sports fans. We watch it. We bet on it. We talk about it. I mean, we've done that our whole media career. So I was all in. I was going to do what I usually do. I, I studied up, uh, you know, saw the mate, looked at right before our preview show, had everything gone. And we did the preview show. And look, I'm not Nostradamus when I said that I thought Golden State was going to win the title this year, right? This is something that we had looked at over the past three years where you had the Curry injury, then the Thompson injury twice, and just problems with Golden State that they were finally going to be healthy once Thompson came back during the season, and he did. And look, they've been unbelievable, right? 53 wins. They went through a lull there in the season. I think they were a little better than that personally, but they went through a lull there. And they bring in James Wiseman, right? They get Andre Wiggins, like you said. All great parts of the season. Wiseman out for the year, though, with an injury. But Jordan Poole steps up, like you said. That, that didn't make me an expert in saying that I thought Golden State was going to win because you still got to go through the season and you never know what's going to happen. But So something happened before the first game, and, and I just I didn't watch any of the first games in the NBA, and then I didn't watch any of the next day, and I didn't watch any. This has progressed throughout the year. Chris, when I tell you I have not watched a minute of NBA basketball, including the playoffs, I'm being dead serious. So all I am is a uh, observer via the what I read, what I see on online, that's that's as much as my knowledge goes without watching it. But I can tell you this, that when I looked at the Dallas team in this series, and again, not watching it, and you know what Doncic is going to bring for you. The problem here is what else does this Dallas Maverick team bring? And basically, in my mind, they should, you know, this should be Phoenix here. And whatever the case may be, they just they were better than Phoenix in that series, and now they're here. I don't think Dallas was ready for this because I don't think they're that far along as a, as a team. And we're seeing what's happening now. This should be Golden State Phoenix. Yeah, my predictions, Tim, were flat out uh, le- a lot left to be desired. Let's put it that way. Because I had basically a repeat of the NBA Finals from a year ago is what I expected, obviously, with the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bucks, obviously, the disappointment when it came to this postseason and the Phoenix Suns likewise as well. So this is not exactly what I had anticipated seeing, you know, Boston, Miami, Golden State, and Dallas being the four teams left. And so I just kind of like reflect on it. And look, you you, you were, it, yes, you, you say that, uh, you know, you predicted that Golden State, and that's, that's a, a solid prediction. And I, I don't necessarily think that you were necessarily wrong in any way. It was just, a, it was just, the circumstances were different, right? I mean, you had other players ending up stepping up for the Warriors that you didn't expect to step up. The results end up right now, as of right now, are are what you predicted, right? It's just other guys have been key to getting them where they need to be, which is one win away from the NBA Finals, and then 
Probably. I mean, I, I guess if the Celtics get in, I, I mean, are the Celtics going to be favored over the Warriors in the finals? No, I don't think so. So if, uh, and if Miami gets in, I don't think Miami's going to be favored over the Warriors either. So they're, they're going to essentially, I think, going to be the favorite to win the title. And I think that's going to go a long way for the legacy for some of the key guys on the Warriors, Draymond Green, uh, you know, who, if they aren't able to win a championship this year, it's going to be uh, another feather in their cap moving forward. And going to add to, you know, basically what this, uh, I mean, it's not, look, it's not going to continue any type of dynasty because I thought that's over. That, that was a different team with Golden State, obviously with Kevin Durant, some other pieces. And so that era is over, but it's going to not, it's, it's going to kind of spark another one, right? Where we're going to start to have to consider Golden State among all the teams that can win a championship if the Warriors are able to knock out and, and hoist the Larry, Larry O'Brien trophy, despite the fact that you, what, you just, you, what you just said, that they had to deal with some adversity and it wasn't exactly smooth sailing all season long for Golden State from a standpoint of, uh, oh, yeah, this is, we, we did not view this team as clearly the best team in the NBA all year long. And it was, you know, the Warriors championship to lose. That, that's not in any way, shape, or form the way things have went this year. And so I think that uh, not saying that Golden State's been under the radar by any means, but I think that there's it's been kind of a different way, right, that we've seen this Golden State team move forward and have success in the NBA playoffs. What are your thoughts on this, Chris, when, when I tell you, and it wasn't, you know, Tommy always says you boycotted the NBA this year. I didn't, I didn't purposely boycott it. I just didn't watch it from the beginning. And then before you know it, I'm two weeks in the season. And I, you know, I've seen highlights here and there on ESPN, but I just, it just never happened for me. And then once I got two weeks in, three weeks in, I was just like, I don't really miss this. And it just, you know, I never, I didn't really think twice about it. And now here we are. I went a whole year without watching any basketball. First time in my life ever. And it really kills me in that I grew up a Celtics fan. Um, my second favorite team in the 90s was the Mavericks, or late 80s, early 90s was the Mavericks. I don't mind Miami. And and um, obviously with Golden State, they're great to watch. So there's four teams here that I really enjoy, but I just – I can't do it now. Now I'm boycotting it just out of pure principle that I'm going to make it through the entire year without watching one minute of NBA basketball. Am I crazy, Chris? Is, has this product just soured me that much that I refuse to watch it because of that solely? Or am I just, you know, am I just expanding this a little more than I should? Well, we can take a dive into it. I mean, I would, what I would ask the question is, is why, uh, and, and boycott's kind of a big word, you know, it's yeah. kind of a big, uh, you know, a big description as far as, what uh, your interest is regarding the NBA. I've never at any time over the past, what, three, four or five years ever thought to myself, I'm going to boycott the NBA. I'd be interested in the reasons why you or or Tommy would give to boycotting the sport. I don't really know. Uh, I look, I, we, we, you and I, you and I are friends. You and I, Tommy, we're we're, uh, friends. We've, we've talked, uh, you know, all the time when it comes from a sports standpoint, I, I, I quite frankly, don't remember, any reasons why you guys would, you know, why you would take that stand as far as like, as far as boycotting the NBA, what were the reasons given as far as, as, as specifically with yourself or Tommy, as far as why you would boycott the sport? No, I said, I said, I didn't purposely boycott it. I just, Oh, okay. 
I just didn't watch it. And then before you know it, the season's over. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm already this far in. I'm not I'm not going to do it now for whatever reason. Maybe I'm just being a little uh, over the top on it. I, I think and you I think you'll agree that the game just I don't know if it's too easy nowadays for these guys, Tommy or uh, Chris. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or is it it's just there, obviously we know the lack of defense. Well, it's never going to be there or the, it's always going to be the lack of defense. Is the game too easy? Is it just scoring too easy because of that? It, it kind of just turns me off to it. I think a couple aspects, and look, I, I'm not going to speak for yourself. I'm not going to speak for Tommy. I'll speak for myself. Obviously, myself as a Detroit Pistons fan, I can at times be disinterested, right? At times, I have apathy because it's a, it's an organization that, you know, we haven't really necessarily been relevant since the mid-2000s, right? When we, you know, obviously Chauncey Billups and, you know, Tayshaun Prince and Ben Wallace and those teams that were, you know, consistently going deep into the playoffs. So it's been, a, you know, a slow and not necessarily happening rebuild for the Detroit Pistons. So that's kind of my MO as to why I wouldn't be all fired up every time the NBA season rolls around. Now, to your point, which you brought up, yes, I think there is a lot to that as far as the softness of uh, professional sports across the board. Maybe the NBA gets a little more of a bad rap than other leagues do when it comes to that. But you know what also, Tim, I think is a factor, and this is absolutely, I think, plays into why a lot of people are kind of sour on the NBA. It's the idea that guys are going to play together on super teams. That's something that we, you talked to, you just talked about it, right, Tim, about how, you know, you grew up in the 80s and the 90s. Imagine Larry Bird going to play with Magic Johnson in Los Angeles with the Lakers. Imagine Magic going to play with Isaiah Thomas in Detroit for the Pistons. Imagine Kevin McHale and, you know, and Charles Barkley going to Philadelphia in 1983, you know, or, you know, or, or, Kevin McHale and some other great player going to Philadelphia in 1983 and playing with the Sixers to win a championship. It's unheard of, right? We, we, we would never even think that. The idea back then, even into the 90s, was that, you know what? I'm here. Let's try to do this. You know, let's try to do this organically. Let's try to do this because I think I'm a superstar. And I think that we can build around me and turn us into a championship team with role players, with other guys who are borderline superstars, right? That can win, that can help us win championships. That shifted. It really did probably around what, 2005-ish and then beyond where you started seeing, and obviously I'm talking about LeBron James, right? Where he has the announcement and he ends up going to Miami. Oh, by the way, who's in Miami? Uh, another great player in, in Dwayne Wade, right? So, I mean, that kind of like spearheaded the whole thing. And then obviously you've got Kevin Durant going to Golden State. And, you know, you have all the players that uh, that could have been a super team basically in, in Oklahoma City, right? Going to other teams with the anticipation that they can win a championship. And obviously it didn't work out with some of those players and some of those teams. Uh, the Houston Rockets and some others. But the point being is that there was this idea that great players – can team up with other great players and start, you know, just boat racing championships. And I think that, you know, the the NBA fan was just kind of like, you know, unless you're a fan of those teams where you were ecstatic, 
is the other teams that were like other fans and the other narratives out there were like, oh yeah, I really did really you can't you you don't think you're you know you don't think you're a big enough superstar where you can you know you can have those other those supporting players come around you at your original destination and win a title. So I think that kind of w- what played into a little bit of this, you know, this, uh, this discouragement, I guess is the word I'll use when it comes to the NBA and when it comes to kind of, you know, supporting and following the league. Well, we got Golden State up 3 nothing. They can close that out Tuesday in Dallas. Game four tomorrow night in Boston, the Heat with a 2-1 lead. Boston is a six-and-a-half-point favorite tomorrow at home. Your thoughts on this series so far? Kind of an interesting back-and-forth series. No question about it. And Boston Celtics, I have to admit, before the series even started, I really thought that, you know, obviously as we reshaped, not reseeded, but, you know, we found out who the four teams were that were going to be moving forward. I really thought Boston was a team that could absolutely end up winning the championship. I don't necessarily feel that way So after watching – the th- first three games of this series so far and seeing the heat with a two, one lead. This is a, you, you have to be concerned, Tim, when you look at this Boston Celtics team that the Miami heat were able to pull out and gut out that, that, that was the adjective that was used a lot talking about the Miami heat yesterday in that win over the Boston Celtics was gutsy because Jimmy Butler, obviously injured in the game, wasn't necessarily too efficient or productive. He ended up with eight points in the game. Bam out of Bayou, obviously had a huge game and uh, went for 31. But Kyle Lowry, they get him back. He doesn't have, a, you know, an electrifying game offensively. But uh, he was definitely a factor. And the Heat were still able to win this game by six, Tim, despite the fact that Tyler Hero had a bad game, shot 4 of 15 from the field, despite the fact that Jimmy Butler was essentially not much of a factor and I just mentioned Kyle Lowry and what his stats were as well, too. Um, Victor Oladipo was pretty much non-existent in this game. As uh, they did get uh, one of the Martin, the Martin, one of the Martin twins was able to uh, contribute a little bit, and I thought was probably uh, one of the deciding factors into Miami winning this game. But and PJ Tucker as well, too. But the Heat were still able to win in Boston on their floor, up there in Massachusetts despite the fact that some of their key guys just did not have good games. That's not a good sign for the Boston Celtics, despite the fact that, yes, I mean, you got it. You, you look at this team, an, another team that when they are clicking on all cylinders, you love the balance, right? You love Jason Tatum and Horford and Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and, you know, and, and Williams obviously off the bench is able to contribute. You love it when those guys are all going. And we saw it obviously in that, uh, final game of uh, the previous series against Milwaukee. It's a team that is extremely dangerous. The problem is, though, is that Miami, uh, if they're going to if they're going to be able to gut out wins like this on the road, I find it uh, very hard to believe that the Celtics can be able to go down to South Beach and focus and get wins down there. So, um, I started the series thinking that Boston was the favorite, and right now I have to say, Tim, I'm uh, kind of hedging my bets and uh, looking the other way here. With that being said, so you lean Miami tomorrow? I would, I would, I would. You know what? I I think Boston wins, mm-hmm. and I think they they do they do eke it out. But I I just it doesn't. Even though if they do get the victory in Game Four, it's it's almost like it's a salvageable thing. You know, it's almost like they're salvaging it. 
So I just think it's more of a hiccup because I think that, you know, Boston, I, I mean, I want to believe, look, I mean, I, like I told you, I, I, when the series started, I'm thinking Boston absolutely could be the, uh, could be the NBA champion. But after seeing the first three games of the series, uh, despite the fact the Celtics were able to win down in Miami, I, I just, I, I think it was just absolutely instrumental what transpired in the, in the, in game three on, uh, on Saturday, and I think that uh, is there's no question that uh, the Miami Heat right now are the clear favorite. So, from a betting perspective, you like the points tomorrow with the Heat. I do, yes. Okay. And from a betting perspective, Tuesday in an elimination game, Dallas it looks like is a one point favorite in most places on the board. Yeah, and this is I mean, look, everyone wants to talk about the zigzag theory, which is kind of out the window, right? When the team's down three zero. But if there's a game that they could get, it's probably going to get be you know the one game they have left in, in Dallas, right? I mean, I would expect that the, that's the that's the one game they can probably get, unless oh, well, am I mistaken though? Is, is it two? Is it two two one 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 or is it two three two? Two three two, right? Oh, it's two three two. Okay, so then they would have another game in Dallas then. No, so, I think you're right. Two two one one one. Yeah, so I was yeah. I was going to say I thought they went back to San Francisco. Yeah, no. for game. Five, so it's uh, they would have yeah, to, yeah would they say, would have to go back yeah yeah they have to go back so I I, I look I do I, am I gonna am I gonna put my hard earned cash Tim on the Dallas Mavericks to to win this game probably not I'll probably stay away from it but my expectation is that they do extend the series and don't get swept Chris Wynn Tim Unglesby Heat Wave Sports time for our first break. And when we come back, we'll stay with the NBA as the Los Angeles Lakers coaching job has some names on the list. And, and one that was not on, is not on the list because you can scratch him off. We'll talk about that man that Chris knows very well on the other side of the timeout. It's Heat Web Sports. It's Fox Sports Radio. This is you, baby. This is you. No, no, no. You must show us some respect. It's a seesaw battle. Neither offense can move. Colts driving now with the ball. Armadillos better stop him. Now, how could the ref call that? It was a clean kick to the face mask. Guys going in. Illegal contact. Number 51. Senkutsu elbow thrust. To the up back. Oimowatsu roundhouse lunge kick to the quarterback. Takatami Ensort block to the. Never mind. 15 yards. First down. Now back to Heat Wave Sports with Tim Mugglesby and Tom Barr. It's Tim Mugglesby and Chris Wynn with you here on a Super Sunday night. Heat Wave Sports, Fox Sports Radio, Las Vegas. We're looking at the NBA right now. Tomorrow night, game four, Boston, Miami. Celtics a six and a half point favorite at home. And on Tuesday in Dallas, Golden State, chance to eliminate the Dallas Mavericks as they're up three games to zero in that series. Slight slight underdog from what I can see. It looks like around Dallas a point favorite in most places. But as you know, Chris, when we talk about the NBA, and the, the rotation of head coaching jobs every season, it seems like 
another big big franchise job up for for grabs in the LA Lakers. It doesn't depend, doesn't matter uh, if they're in a, in a downward spiral or if they're on top of the world. The Lakers are always a discussion point when we talk about the NBA. And I saw the potential, I guess their their finalist list, and that includes Milwaukee Bucks assistant Darvin Ham, former Portland Trailblazer head coach Terry Stotts, and Golden State assistant Kenny Atkinson are on the list. Someone who is no longer on the list, or at least a wish list for Rob Palenka, is University of Michigan head coach Jawan Howard, who declined to whether it's the job was offered to him and he declined or there's an they want an interview and declined. Either way, Jawan Howard will not be the coach of the Lakers, Chris. He's staying at Michigan. And this is somebody you and I, look, we grew up watching the Fab Five. We followed his career in the NBA and now through his coaching ranks as well. You know, very, very good basketball mind here. And he wants to stay in college. And, he, you know, he's done a, a great job with his alma mater. There's no doubt about it. Uh, your thoughts on this? Jawan Howard says, no, Lakers, I don't want it. Interesting to say the least when you take a look at the what looks like the three candidates, right? You're talking about Darwin Ham, obviously Kenny Atkinson, and Terry Stotts. It looks like they will be one one of those three guys is going to be the next head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. To me, the most intriguing is Darwin Ham. Look, eleven seasons as an assistant coach in Los Angeles with the Lakers, uh, also in Atlanta, and obviously Milwaukee, where he won the you know the world championship last year with the Bucks as an assistant, and let's be straight up about it. There's just not many assistants waiting for their first head coaching job that have more experience than Darvin Ham does. I mean, the guy's got a ton of experience as an assistant. The most obvious thing to say, though, is that, and it's not a fault of Darvin Ham by any stretch of the imagination, uh, he's waited a long time for an opportunity. And the, the big difference between him and Atkinson and Terry Stotts is that he's never been a head coach before. And I don't know with this team at this time, right, with the Lakers, if that's an ideal situation. Now, when, with respect to Ham, you're talking about a guy who's a disciple of Mike, you know, Budenholzer. You know, he was a, uh, a, a former NBA player, which has some cachet, right, when you're dealing with a roster the likes of LeBron James and Russell Westbrook and Anthony Davis. And even, you know, some of the guys that are contributors like, you know, like uh like Horton Taylor and like uh like Horton and and uh, and Austin Reeves and guys like that, I think that's important. You know, he's he's basically seen as a guy who's a respected locker room voice. He's a, he's also important when it comes to skill development, and uh, when it comes to the defensive side of things, he is a uh, he's he brings a lot to the table. So he's won a championship both as a player and as a coach, and so. I think him knowing that that kind of winning chemistry that they need, I think is something that kind of trumps, to be quite honest with you, his inexperience as a head coach in the league. So I would think Darvin Ham, in my in my mind, he's the leader in the clubhouse right now if you're talking about these three guys. Now, Terry Stott's interesting because you go into the other end of the spectrum here, right, Tim? You're going to a guy that's got a ton of experience as a head coach. 13 seasons in the league, Atlanta, Milwaukee, Portland. He's got a winning record in the league. Playoffs, not so much. Not a great record in the playoffs. Basically, uh, you know, he's got uh, twice. He's got twice as many losses as he has wins in the playoffs. And we all know the reason for that. Because Terry Stott's teams, they score points, right? Offensively, they get things going, and they can put up numbers. From a defensive standpoint, it leaves a lot to be desired when it comes to Terry Stott. So 
Experience-wise, no question. He's He's got that. And, uh, yes, he's got a winning record in six of those seasons where, uh, especially when he was in Portland, where he, he basically peaked right with that appearance back in 2019 in the Western Conference Finals. And uh, he's got a lot of credit, obviously, for developing Damian Lillard into an MVP caliber type of player. So, um, and if, if the Lakers do end up keeping Russell Westbrook and keeping him in the mix, I think that would be very beneficial of Terry Stotts from a development standpoint. To, not, not necessarily development because Russell's been in the league a long time, but just, you know, from a cohesiveness, I think that would be good for them. Um, but Stotts has some negatives as well, too. You're talking about a player, or excuse me, a coach who's 64 years old. And, you know, with the NBA, there seems to be a kind of a feeling that you need to go to younger coaches, right? You need to go to coaches that are uh, either you know, just far removed. When you talk about Steve Nash and some of these other guys who just, you know, got done playing five minutes ago and uh, going to coaches like that as opposed to, you know, some of these older coaches who have more of a track record. So also, too, when it comes to the, to the playoff situation with Terry Stotts, he's a, a guy that's only ever gotten out of the first round three times in his nine playoff runs. Not exactly a great track record when it comes to the playoffs. So, I, I look, I think the Lakers are going to be courteous towards Terry, but I don't necessarily think that he's going to be the guy. Kenny Atkinson, obviously, four seasons as the head coach in Brooklyn, where he did not have a good record. Okay. He had one playoff appearance where they were just didn't have, where they were just terrible. Okay. And uh, won one game out of the five games they played. Um, but he's worked for a ton of great people, right? Mike D'Antoni. He's worked for Bug Holter. He's worked for Ty Lue. He's worked, you know, now Steve Kerr, obviously. And with Atkinson, you're talking about a guy who's been a trusted bench coach, right? Someone who's, you know, it, it, for, as far as his reputation, uh, one of the more, you know, respected minds in the game. And so, he, look, he took over a kind of a desperate situation in Brooklyn and helped the Nets rebuild. You know, getting that team back, what was it, 2019, where they had D'Angelo Russell and Jared Allen, guys like that. And they were able to get the playoff berth there, and and he ended up getting you know bounced out of their midseason the next year, and so you know I don't know how he deals with the whole politics situation when it comes to the NBA with some of these coaches that have to deal with the, like, the politics. I don't think Atkinson that's really his bag. He's more of a guy you know he's he's more of a gym rat. Uh, another guy that's big on player development and being kind of a sharp all around mind. So. Uh, those are some of the good things I think for Atkinson. I, when you talk about the hurdles, um, I, you're, you're, it, but if if he ends up with the Lakers, right, you got to worry about the whole situation with Westbrook because Atkinson probably would find himself in the middle of uh, you know a power struggle similar to the one that he had in Brooklyn, where you know Kevin Durant essentially has pushed Kyrie out out the door. So yes, he's worked for some with some big time players from Kawhi Leonard to Paul George to Steph Curry to Draymond to Clay, And, you know, he's he's done really well with a number of those guys. But LeBron James might be another animal, right, Tim? He might be another guy that uh, is not exactly in the same mold as some of those other guys when it, came with, when it comes with having to deal with that. So uh, while Atkinson, I would, I would be hesitant if I was Jeannie Bush and the powers that be in Los Angeles – to go that direction. So I take a look at those three. I really think they're, they're probably going to go towards Dar Darvin Ham. But to kind of cap this all off, Tim, 
I got to say this, and I, I agreed with Stephen A because in the, in the pregame today, before the before the game, obviously the, the Dallas Mavericks and, and and the Warriors game, they there was you know basically, in, and Stephen A talked about how he doesn't understand how guys like Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy are not getting a look in Los Angeles. These are guys that are proven, and that you know, and that I would agree with him. And I don't, you know, there's a lot of times where I disagree with Stephen A. on a number of things, but I, I mean, why wouldn't you take a look at the coaches like that? You know, the coaches that that I think would, you know, with Jeff Van Gundy. I mean, look, he's a guy who has, you know, has a coach for a while, but still, I think is very viable and very relevant when it comes to to coaches. And then Mark Jackson, it speaks for himself. So, I, I mean, I don't understand why they've just narrowed it down to these three. And haven't taken a look at maybe some other options that might be, quite frankly, better fits for this Los Angeles Lakers team, given the personnel that you have and the big time superstars that they have down there in Los Angeles. Our friend, friend of the show as well, Jose V says, Chris, that Darvin Ham, hands down, is the best choice. He's tired of them recycling old names, especially guys that have never won anything. A perfect example would be. The Sacramento job that just got filled by Mike Brown. He did win something, I guess. But still, the point being is um, you're recycling, yes, these guys. And why not take a chance on these assistants like him, like Atkinson? Uh, I, I, I kind of agree. I, I do. I, I think that you're always seeing the same names up for jobs. I mean, even look at the Charlotte job that's that's uh, going to be the next one to be filled, it looks like, after L.A. And that's laden with you know the front office and, of course, the ownership. With Cupcheck and Jordan, there's a lot of basketball knowledge there, and the believe I guess the, the the two top guys for that job would be the retread in Mike D'Antoni, and then Darvin Ham also his name there. So uh, I agree. Why not give the young guys a shot? But then I also see your point. How is Jeff Van Gundy not getting a look? And Mark Jackson, who essentially built Golden State up until the point right before they won when Kerr came in. No question about it. I think that, you know, and look, I, apparently uh, I was bouncing around the New York Daily News, or excuse me, the Los Angeles Daily News, and apparently there, there's going to, the Lakers obviously interviewed Terry Stotts, and they're interviewing Mark Jackson. So apparently Mark Jackson is going to get at least a discussion with, with, with Jeannie and the basketball people there in Los Angeles. So we'll see how that all shakes out. But, yeah, I mean, there's I mean, even, even, quite frankly, and a coach that I'm not really a huge fan of, and Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers, I think, is somebody that should probably get a look, as well as uh, you know, as well as Quinn Snyder. Now, I'm, now, the thought is is that Quinn, both Quinn and Doc, are going to stay put where they are. But uh, so I guess that wasn't the best way for me to put it, saying oh, they should take a look at him because that would be tampering, right? <laughs> you, got, you got coaches that are already under contract with other teams. But the point being is that I just, yeah, I think that when I when I see that the, the Kenny Atkinson, obviously, Terry Stiles and Darvin Ham are, the, you know, the three guys that are essentially the finalists. I'm, you know, yeah, I mean, I and, and look, full disclosure, I'm a little bit biased towards Darvin because he's a fellow Michigander, you know, a Saginaw, Michigan native. And, uh, and so I think he would, and I was always impressed with him, not only as a player, but also as an assistant coach. And I think that, uh, you know, I think he could help build relationships in the locker room with the stars that can be at times abrasive 
and notoriously hard to win over. Let's put it that way, right, Tim? When it comes to the superstars and the stars in that Los Angeles Laker locker room. So, I mean, you know, all things considered, you know, pros and cons across the board between these three, I would I would say Darvin Ham, but I also think that there's, in my mind at least, there's no question that there would be some other coaches out there that I think would be better fits as head coaches in, you know, you know, on you know, essentially the most prestigious and, uh, you know, touted and focused on franchise in the NBA, and that being the Los Angeles Lakers. What are your thoughts on Juwan Howard basically saying, I, I don't want this? Is it, do you think it's, and I saw a story link that, Obviously, he has a son that's going to be a junior, but an incoming freshman now as well. So his two boys are going to be there. It's his alma mater. In the three seasons he's been there, he's made two trips to the tournament, Chris, a Sweet 16 and an Elite Eight. He's won a Big Ten title. Heck, even the first year he was there, I know they were only like, I believe they were 19 and 12. And then as we all were shut down with the pandemic, I still think they would have found a way to squeeze into that tournament. So essentially it would have been three years, three trips to the tournament. You think he's just sitting on a good thing at Michigan and he doesn't want to deal with the politics of the NBA anymore? Tim, I think that there's a number of factors as to why Juwan still is staying put at Michigan and going to just kind of put the NBA on the back burner. Juwan's still relatively young in his college coaching career, right, Tim? I mean, we're talking about a guy who's, uh, you know, essentially, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, at least probably 20, 25 years of Juwan Howard coaching across the board. So I think Juwan looks at it and says, you know what, I, I'm going to, I could be an NBA coach, no question about it. And I'm going to have to jump at the first opportunity that I get. I think he sees the situation and the culture right now in Los Angeles. And he thinks that it's not ideal. I, I think there's uh, clearly, you know, in my own humble opinion as well, too, that the Lakers are no longer the favorite to, to win a championship by any stretch, right? I mean, it's not like we're going to go into the 2022-23 season and say, oh, yeah, this is a Los Angeles Laker team that is going to be right there with the Phoenix Suns and the Golden State Warriors and even, you know, other teams in the West that are going to be contending. So, uh, despite the fact that you have Anthony Davis, you know, LeBron James and still Russell Westbrook there. So I think that was absolutely a factor. And yes, uh, as you pointed out, unfinished business in Ann Arbor, right? He's an alum and he is a proud alum. And this is a team that they look, they, they left a lot to be last season as far as what the potential was and what the expectations were. And they weren't able to come through. And so I think Juwan takes that to heart. I think he really believes that, you know, uh, they can be a team that can be a Final Four contender and a team that can win a national championship. And how great would that be for him, right? And for for just Juwan personally to be, if, if he could ever bring a national championship on a basketball court back to Ann Arbor and that university. So I think that's important to him. So I think there's a little bit of unfinished business. I think there's a little bit of uh, he understands that he's still young in his coaching career and there's going to be opportunities later on down the line. And maybe also the idea that maybe the Lakers situation is not ideal for him. So I think all those things considered uh, probably played a big part into why Juwan ended up not going to Los Angeles and staying up in Lake State. 
Yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's just, he's a smart man. It's ideal, not ideal for him to be there right now. And if I were him, a good thing, he, you know, he got a chance. A lot of stars don't get an opportunity to go back and coach their alma mater. Not only coach him, but coach him to a championship. And I think he believes they're on the cusp. I know last year, you and I both follow uh, Big Ten basketball very well. And he had uh, some bumps in the road with some injuries and, and uh, just poor, poor performance in some of those games. And then, of course, the, the big blow up at the end of the year with Coach from Rutgers. So lot, it was a, a trying season for, for Jawan Howard and the Michigan Wolverines. But they, they put it together at the end. They get in the tournament. They get to the Sweet 16. I think he's, you know, from what I've read and what I've seen, that's his recruiting class for the next year. He's uh, he's dialing up something here, Chris. And if it's not this year, he's he's looking really good in two years. So I think you're right. He's he's playing his cards close because he knows what he's got there at Michigan. Before we take the time out, just real quickly, you and uh, many of our friends were out at the Aces game the other night. Just your quick thoughts on the six and one Las Vegas Aces here as they open up the WNBA season under Becky Hammond. Now this team is is scoring points, Chris, ninety two points a game. Definitely not the Bill Lambier ball. You know, it's funny, Tim, because we talk about the Las Vegas Aces. This is a team that has been right there in the doorstep, right, with the Bill Lambier era here the last two, three seasons. They've been one of the teams that has been the favorite to win a WNBA championship and have not been able to close the deal. There is all kinds of optimism, Tim. I mean, there is all kinds of optimism with this Las Vegas Aces team given – you know, the emergence of Becky Hammond now as the head coach. You're seeing players like Jackie Young kind of coming into their own. De'Erica Hamby getting, I think, the respect and love that she deserves as a, a player that can be, uh, you know, kind of that person that can fill in the blanks, right? A lot. I mean, look, I, I mean, I'm hesitant to compare these players to NBA players, but when I think of De'Erica Hamby, I absolutely think, of someone like a Ben Wallace or a, or a Dennis Rodman, right? Where you can, you know, it's it, she's not going to go out there and drop 20 every game, but there's going to be games where she goes out there and gets her 10, her 11 rebounds. There's going to be games where she absolutely makes a difference because she does the little things that other players on this team won't do. You're seeing the emergence of Kel look, Kelsey Plum, right? Under Bill Lambeer, was it just a different type of player? Was not the, you know, was not someone who was out there looking to push her game to a new level offensively. Not the case here in 2022. She's absolutely evolved and, and become more of a focal point when it comes to the offense. And so Kelsey has really got her game going. And so, you know, and obviously you're talking about someone the likes, you're, when you're talking about a superstar, right? When you're talking about an ambassador for the game, Asia Wilson just epitomizes that for this Las Vegas Aces team. And look, a lot of these players, you know, they, they are holdovers from the Bill Lambier era into the Becky Hammond era, but they've been able to make the transition seamlessly. And Asian Wilson is one of those one of those players that's been able to do it. And she, you, you cannot find a better player as far as uh, from a personality standpoint to be the leader of your team than Asia Wilson in the WNBA. And look. As someone, you know, we look, we cover the team and we end up having, you know, some affinity for this team and we end up having some love for this team. And that's fine, you know, but you have to also kind of take a step back and think about and, and 
look, it's early on. It's only seven games into the season. So we have, I haven't had a chance. I haven't, I haven't covered every game, so I haven't, but I haven't had a chance to see all the other teams in the WNBA. But let me tell you something, Tim. Of the teams that I have seen, okay, the Phoenix Mercuries, the Minnesota Blinks, the, you know, the Seattle Storms, you know, the, and uh, I haven't seen, you know, obviously the WNBA champion Chicago Sky yet. But as far as what I've seen and what the Aces have done and in this 6-1 and one start, they are clearly – without question, the best team in the WNBA right now. And they have a clearly, in my opinion, the best head coach in the WNBA right now. And from a chemistry standpoint, it is off the charts. You see it in the postgame press conferences with the responses from the ladies. It is a great situation right now. And even, and Tim, even Bill Lambeer getting honored on Thursday night against the Minnesota Lynx. Obviously, you'd expect that some of the media would ask him questions regarding this team and what his, what his thoughts are, right, as far as what they could do. Even Bill Lambeer acknowledged that, yeah, maybe the change is a good thing for this franchise. Maybe Becky coming in is something that could be beneficial to this team and their chances of winning a championship. When you have a guy like Bill Lambeer who's won multiple WNBA championships, by the way. Look, we understand what he was as a player, great player, a, you know, a great, essentially a great role player on championship teams. But as a coach, you know, he gets slept on when it comes to the women's game. The guy has won multiple championships. He is, an, you know, in my opinion, one of, the, one of the better head coaches ever in WNBA history. And when you get him being able to be humble and talk about this team the way that he does, and say, hey, this is a team that we we believe absolutely can win with now Becky Hammond at the helm. That's saying a lot. And so I think all things are pointing up right now for this Aces team. It's going to be a lot of fun tomorrow night too, Tim, covering that game as well. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to roll down there. Los Angeles Sparks in town. Yeah, there's a former player for the Los Angeles Sparks that used to play here in Vegas by the name of Liz Cambage. So it could be kind of could be kind of interesting to see how this all plays out tomorrow night with Los Angeles and Vegas going at it at Michelob Ultra Arena. Ace 6-1, and one, you said it best early in the season. There are, um, look, the, the beginning of the schedule is very, very heavy with home games towards the end of the season. There's a lot of time on the road, but we're, we're far away from July and August. You know, we're, in, we're early in into the schedule, but you're right. Tomorrow night's game, 7 o'clock over Mandalay Bay, the return of Liz Cambage. I wonder if our buddy Jose V is going to be out there, Chris, to uh, maybe he can get a couple words from Liz for for us, and we'll get those played on the air. I'm expecting Jose V is going to be rolling in there. I mean, Jose, Jose's, Jose's been very – he's been he's been very prominent. He's, he's, he's been around for the game, so I would expect that uh, he's not going to miss that opportunity to get a chance to see what transpires between the Sparks and the Aces. And, of course, Liz coming back to Vegas. And I'll be interested to see how the crowd reacts, right, Tim? I'm going to be interested because, look, Liz is not is someone – she's a personality, and at times she can be abrasive, and she can be – I mean, I don't, I don't want to use some words on the radio that that's going to get me booted off, but there's times where she can be problematic. Let's put it that way. And so uh, it's going to be – it's going to be intriguing to say the 
to see how the Aces fans respond to Liz coming back here to the Mick. I think they will cheer her. The thing I've learned about WNBA fans over my yep. my career covering this league, Chris, is they generally like everybody for some reason. So there's that's that's the thing, you know. It's once they played here, it's almost like they'll always be a part of uh, the in their minds, always be part of the team. You know, you saw the same thing with Kayla yeah. McBride when she came back. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, when Kayla came back with Minnesota on Thursday, that there's fans with their signs, by the way. You know, yeah. saying, "Hey, we we still love you," and yeah. so that was kind of cool to see that. So I, so I think we might be right. Now you might be right, but I, but who, who knows? Who knows? We could have some, we could have some edgier fans, Tim, that maybe chime in, and uh, and make things a little bit fun yeah. on on your Monday night. We will see. We will see. <laughs> hour one in the books here on Heat Wave Sports. When we return in hour number two, we're going to talk Major League Baseball. Uh, Tim Anderson and Josh Donaldson situation i'll get chris's thoughts on that and the nhl stanley cup playoffs three games tonight or today and the number one seed florida panthers in serious serious trouble we'll go over that as well all in hour two it's heatwave sports it's fox sports radio now back to heatwave sports hour two heatwave sports fox sports radio las vegas 989 FM 1340 AM at HW Sports over on Twitter. Tim Unglesby, Chris Wynn, as we wrap up a weekend heading into a holiday weekend, which Memorial Day weekend next week, we will be off to enjoy the holiday. So we'll talk to you in two weeks' time after that. But all that being said, we're going to move over to some Major League Baseball. And Chris, the, the incident involving Chicago White Sox, mid, uh, middle infielder Tim Anderson, and Yankee third baseman Josh Donaldson. This there's so many. There's like two backstories to this, and uh, you know now you have players on each team, obviously coming to the side of their own teammate, and this is involving two teams that are supposed to be right there battling in the American League for a right to play in the World Series. So, Chris, we saw today uh, the Boobirds out. It's a home run and then does the, the, sh- the shush game, a little shush there. And, you know, coming into the dog days of summer, this this rivalry could get very, very heated. No question about it, right, Tim? This could kind of amp things up and get both of these teams fired up and create, you know, kind of a, you know, old rivalry situation when it comes to Major League Baseball. But when it, with respect to just the incident, look, uh, obviously Donaldson sparked that bench clearing incident on Saturday after calling Tim Anderson Jackie, hmm. meaning Jackie Robinson, and the manager for the Yankees, Aaron Boone, essentially spent the rest of the day and uh, and some of the time before the game today saying that he was wanted to get down to the bottom of this, right? He wanted to know exactly what the situation was and exactly what the context was. Now, it's my understanding, obviously, that there was apparently uh, that Tim Anderson had made some comments back in 2019 during an interview where he had referred to himself as the next Jackie Robinson or in that frame or whatever. And so that kind of led to Josh Donaldson meeting, you know, speak, speaking with the media yesterday. And talking about this saying, uh, you know, 
that there, I don't believe that he, there was no malicious intent behind it. He essentially was just talking about how, uh, you know, he was referring to that article and was trying to make it kind of lighthearted and funny, right? That's, that's kind of the frame of mind that Josh Donaldson took with respect to Tim Anderson. Now, you know, you get into a game like this, right, where it's heated and there's competition and then all that stuff kind of goes out the window. Also, the fact that they, they don't really have a relationship. It's not like Tim Anderson and Josh Donaldson are boys, right? They're not guys who are friends. They're not, you know, two people who necessarily would joke around with each other. So I think this was a misjudgment on, on Josh's part. You know, if I'm him, you just don't want to go there, right? You don't want to go there. I mean, just stay away. Don't, don't make the comment. You know, just don't, just don't do it. Uh, what, what did our parents tell us when we were kids? You know, if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, don't say it. That's kind of the way I feel about the whole thing. Now, I, you can also make the case, too, that Tim's being a little bit sensitive regarding this, too. And, you know, and, and maybe there's people out there that are saying, oh, Chris, you, you, you know, you're just, you know, you're just, you're just trying to take a side or, you're, you know, you're try, trying to take Josh Donaldson's side. No, not necessarily. I mean, I think two things can be true here. You know, I think that, you know, Josh shouldn't have said it. And I also can think that, you know, Tim is, is making a bigger deal out of it than it ultimately it's going to end up being. Now, look, Major League Baseball apparently is going to be doing an investigation. I don't know what comes out of it. Um, Boone, the manager of the uh, Yankees, uh, spent pretty much the entirety what, of the media session talking about Donaldson. Uh, and rather than immediately siding with his players, you know, as most managers would do, Boone essentially made it clear that he wasn't supporting Donaldson for, for calling a black player Jackie, even mm -hmm. if he meant it was some sort of strange joke. And so, and then Boone kind of talked about, oh, look, I don't believe there was any malicious intent in that regard as well, too. And, and he basically said what I just told you, where he said, look, this is somewhere where, in my opinion, he should not be going. And so, uh, you know, Boone doesn't think there's going to be any more on-field issues. I, to be in my own personal humble opinion, I think a lot of this is as much to do about nothing. I really do. I mean, I don't think it's going to end up being any some big incident or there's not going to be any suspensions or any kind of anything along those lines. Um, and myself, like like Boone, like Aaron Boone, I look at it and say, we got we to make sure that, that that context is taken into account here, right? And the context was he was referring to Anderson, calling himself a modern-day Jackie Robinson back in 2019. And, you know, I'm going to take Donaldson for at his word when I saw the press conference because I wanted to hear from Donaldson, right, Tim? I mean, I wanted to hear exactly, you know, why, you know, he feels like he was, you know, that he felt comfortable enough to use that to use that reference or actually say something like that. So, um, you know, I, and, and look, and, and even by, even Aaron Boone admitted, so he, when he first heard the name Jackie, he was taken aback. So look, if it's enough to people, then, Hey, then it probably shouldn't have been said. And I'll, that, that that's kind of my opinion as well too. And I'll just kind of like leave it at that. The thing with Josh Donaldson is, he seems to be a guy that 
I don't know if I don't know him personally to say that he does it on purpose or he truly feels a certain way. I think he's just a guy that gets under people's skin. Yeah. For, for, some, for some reason, you know, in his time with Atlanta, his time with Minnesota or uh, Toronto, he's always he's not afraid. Let's just put it this way: he's not afraid to give media or writers something to talk about with his quotes. You know, and I don't have anything specific. I just know over the years. Josh Donaldson is not does not shy away from, from creating some type of controversy for himself there. So is it just that he's that that um, the thorn in the side of, of opposing teams or, or teammates he doesn't respect? Maybe that's just the way he is. And I, I, like you said, I don't know the whole deal and I don't know the situation supposedly. And this is a big supposedly that Josh Donaldson had talked to Tim Anderson before, like they were joking around about it and he had called him that before and then all of a sudden this time he flipped out i don't know whether that's true or false or or, or what the gray area is in between that but you know it's darren boone says he doesn't think any more on the field incidents will happen i, I wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't be 100 percent sure about that aaron you know when you're talking about pennant races and you're talking about especially if these teams make it into the playoffs and have to play each other there's there's going to be some type of um it's just the way it is because there's pressure there's there's players are tense and things happen people talk and josh Allenson is not going to keep his mouth shut we already know that so if he can get an advantage by being in somebody's head i mean that's just the way he is now if he did say something that was perceived as being racist then that, that obviously needs to be dealt with as well right chris no doubt and tim to kind of expand on what you were saying regarding josh Donaldson, yeah he's there's no question he's a guy who's not afraid to poke the bear, right? He is absolutely one of those guys. But at, on the same note, though, you got to read the room, right? You got to, I mean, you have, there, there are certain scenarios, certain situations where you need to rein it in, okay? And you got to be aware of what you're saying. You know, it's, yeah, is it, is it, uh, you know, sometimes hilarious or sometimes, you know, is it, it, uh, entertaining for us to have people in the game that have no filter right and it can and can and kind of pop off and yes and, and are going to use that type of thing to their advantage when it comes to you know competition on the field no doubt there's going to be players that do that but and you know you got to be more aware especially when you're invoking the likes of jackie robinson you know why tim because you're talking about a guy who's the face of civil rights right you're talking about a guy who's one of the most important figures in the in our history, in American history, not just baseball history, in American history. And so, you know, it, you, you got to kind of understand that it's, it's you're not just naming some regular guy. You know, you're, you're talking about someone who is absolutely instrumental when it came to, you know, the advancement of, uh, of black people, basically, in sports, period. So... I mean, look, I mean, and, and I, it, I guess I'm kind of making this, I just said that it wasn't going to be a big deal and it wasn't going to be, you know, something that was necessarily going to be going to move the needle tremendously. Yet I just went on a complete, you know, rant about how important it was. But the point being is that I think if you're, look, if you're Josh Johnson, just don't go there, you know, just don't go there uh, and, and just come up with other ways, which are, you know, come up with some other creative ways in which you can, you know, kind of get yourself an edge when it comes to the competition on the field. No, I, I agree 100%. Yeah. 
see how it pans out when we're talking speaking of Josh Donaldson's Yankees Chris the the Yanks sit atop not only the American League American League East but the entire MLB with 29 wins 29 and 12 five game lead over the Rays seven over the Jays Boston which is actually on a five game winning streak they're 10 games back and then the O's 12 and a half but just an incredible start for the Yankees this year and Look, you know, when we talked, again, during the preview show, my best future bet was it was the Yankees over 91 and a half wins. And, and look, again, I'm not Nostradamus, but when I see the way teams are set up offensively, the big question mark for me was how the pitching was going to be past Garrett Cole. Well, it's beyond surprise me. Cortez, I didn't even figure to be uh, barely back in rotation guy. He's ended up being you know right there with Cole as an ace. Montgomery has been solid, and Severino being, stretching him out, coming off two years of being injured most of the time, stretching him out has done well for him. So the Yanks fire right now, 29 wins. Yeah, pretty impressive. Look, we can, we're talking about uh, essentially, what, 41 games into the season. So you can make some observations, right? You can take a look at, at things and see that, uh, you know, this is a Yankee team that uh, is over 500 for the last 10 games. They're sitting right now with a with 7.07 winning percentage and already a five-game lead in the American League East. And it's kind of uh, interesting to take a look at, you know, a team that I thought was going to win the division, and, and I thought they are going to uh, win pretty handily, quite honestly, and that's the Toronto Blue Jays sitting, you know, just three games over 500. So this division is going to be a lot of fun. Look, I, I understand that New York has that lead, and uh, you're talking about the likes of Tampa Bay, Toronto, Boston, all, you know, five, seven, ten games out and then uh, the Orioles in the basement. But I still think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch things kind of shake out here as we start to uh, steamroll into late May Ju- you know, and June and July uh, into the dog days of summer. Now, in the Minnesota Twins look pretty – they're one of the teams, in my opinion, that uh, have been kind of a surprise, a positive surprise, and uh, as of late look pretty good too in four straight, the, this Minnesota Twins team. But uh, – I still think the White Sox are the team to beat in that division, despite the fact that they're just sitting one game over 500 in that division. And then, of course, uh, in the West, the Houston Astros setting the pace with uh, 27 wins already. And, of course, the Los Angeles Angels, Tim, right there on their heels as well, too. And then you kind of got all those other teams that are, uh, you know, wailing in the back of that division. So it's going to, I think it's probably going to be the Astros and Angels battling things out there. So no question. American League is going to be a lot of fun and uh, National League likewise. So uh, interesting game today, too, is uh, uh, just a little betting note there, Tim. Of course, with the uh, I had the uh, Boston Red Sox on the run line today and thought that I had not a chance in hell, my friend, at all as that game goes to extra innings against the Seattle Mariners. And then uh, what happens? Well, the old grand slam in extra innings. And one of those rare instances, Tim, I'm sure that uh, you've been a part of, and uh, a lot of the sports bettors out there in uh, the Vegas sphere have been a part of where you get the rare, you know, run line cover in extra innings when the home team is playing and they don't have a chance to just, you know, you know, stockpile a bunch of runs in the top half of the inning. And that was the case for the Boston Red Sox. We get the grand slam. And uh, anybody that had Seattle, you know, plus the uh, one and a half was probably, uh, you know, crying in their beer, to say the least. 
the betting gods were on Chris Wynn's side in that game. What a way to, to win yes, a ticket. They were. What a way to win yeah. a ticket. When you talk about the American League, and you said it, we're only 40-so-odd-so so games into the season, but I can already see, like you said, in the West, a separation. Look, Houston and L.A., and then everybody else. So Oakland, which has always found a way of, of contending with, with no uh, essentially no salary payroll, anywhere near what other franchises are paying. Seattle, which made a, a great run last year, is kind of what I thought they would be. Texas has been rebuilding for the last five years, it seems. But it's Houston, L.A. In the Central, we all know it's Chicago and Minnesota's playing well. They're going to be there, I think, at the end. But Cleveland, Detroit, KC, no, they're not going to be there. And then out in the East, I thought, it look, 120 games left to go. But still, I'm, a, I'm assuming it's going to be Toronto, New York, maybe Boston. I don't think they – you know, when you're at a double-digit deficit already this early – that's going to take a while to chip away at it. I don't see the Yankees going on some massive losing streak all year. So you're essentially looking at wild card situations for some of these teams, but it's a, it's the league seems to be already, already split. Chris, when you look at what 15 was it 15 teams in the American league, you can already essentially say that eight to 10 of them are out already. Right. Well, you take a look at it, right, Tim, it's, it's top heavy as it gets. As all get out, right? I mean, you're talking about teams right now sitting I mean, with the, I mean, with a possible exception, obviously, of the uh, of of the central, you know. Well, no, because both the central and the east pretty much have the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, the same kind of separation when it comes to the teams that we expect to be there, right? When you're talking about the Yankees, Rays, Blue Jays. I, I mean, I I think the Red Sox. I, look, the Red Sox are going to be also Rams, when, in my opinion. When it comes to the American League, but uh, you've got those top three teams. You've got, you know, in the Central, you do have. I mean, Cleveland is only six games back, but you're talking about a team that's three games under 500 and uh, has some real issues, particularly from an injury standpoint. And uh, and it's basically what four and six in their last ten. So they they've been uh, they've been reeling. But you've got Minnesota, who's uh, who's been a really good home team. You've got uh, the White Sox, who surprisingly have a better record on the road than they do at home. So I think those are the two teams that are going to be battling things out. So, again, I'll say it again. It looks like it's top-heavy. It's going to be a top-heavy situation right now when it comes to the American League when you look at these teams. You know what's kind of crazy, too, Tim, that i got to point out when it comes to the American League East? The New York Yankees, when it comes to run differential, are plus 67 right now. The Toronto Blue Jays, who are still three games over 500, are minus 10. Minus 10, and they're only, you know what I mean? And they're three games over 500 still, and we're still going to be talking about the Blue Jays this season as, as being a real player when it comes to this division, when it comes to the American League. So uh, I don't know what that says about that stat of run differential, but that's kind of crazy. Uh, Baltimore Orioles, by the way, sitting at uh, minus 36 in that division. So uh, from for that stat-wise. But look, it's going to be uh, – look, there was teams you, yourself, Tommy, talked about the teams that are going to be big-time players when it comes to uh, down the stretch in the American League, and they're still going to be those teams. It's just kind of uh, interesting, to say the least, how things have shook out here early in the season with uh, you know some of, some of the teams that we thought were going to be there not having uh, as big a lead as we thought they would. Let's take a peek at the National League in the East. The Mets 
an eight-game lead over the Phillies and the defending world champion Atlanta Braves, who are under 500 at this time. So the Mets just they've they've come out of house of fire, Chris. And you talked about differential between run scored and against. They're up 42 positive in New York, winning. You know, here's the thing with the Mets. I've watched a lot of baseball to open this year, and there there are a lot of opportunities for them. They it seems like they always win two out of every three. They win the series. And they just kind of slowly built this lead up in the East over two very good teams in the Braves and the Phils. Yeah, and this is going to be – I'm a little bit surprised at uh, the Atlanta Braves and how they, you know they've come out of the gates here basically what, under 500 both home and away this season and uh, right there in the mix. And uh, basically the same, they have the same record as the Philadelphia Phillies. So um, this is going to be another fun division to watch, even, even though it looks like the Mets could uh, – uh, could and possibly should run away with it, I guess, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, and, uh, obviously understanding the, the situation regarding Max Scherzer and, and some of the other, you know, key, key components of this New York Mets team. But, uh, it's going to be a division that's going to be fun to watch. And, uh, shout out, of course, to, uh, Las Vegas' own, well, Bryce Harper, of course, with Philadelphia, but also a guy named Bryson Stott, who is, uh, at, you know, has had some spots, Tim, where he's been able to get the, some offensive efficiency and been been able to be a factor offensively. We all know what he can do with the glove. He's going to absolutely be a, uh, in in my opinion, a top tier defender when it comes to the major leagues. It's just going to be about the hitting, I think, with Bryson. But uh, he's had a couple spots where he's been able to to be effective offensively. So uh, fun to see that with the Vegas guys there in Philadelphia. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, the the Mets have you know quite frankly been the most talked about team in baseball, and rightfully so. Uh, sitting there with a 28-15 record early on. In the Central, the Brewers, a three-game lead over the Cardinals. And then much like we've seen in, in the American League, you have the Pirates and the Cubs and the Reds all will be non-factors in this division. And, Chris, we talked about that during our, our preview show as well. In fact, I know you were on the Milwaukee train just like Tommy and I were. And that's kind of how it started out the season as well. The, the Brewers and the pitching, you know, it's been – it's really helped carry a stagnant offense, but in St. Louis, pitching has just been just as good. And I think this one is a situation we need to watch come the end of the summer that these two teams battling it out for the Central Division Championship. Yeah, the look with the exception of I think the Yankees and and maybe one other team. You're talking about a Brewers team at home has been impressive so far this season at Miller Park, sitting at 14 and six. And uh, look, they're they're. Uh, they're 11 games over 500, but they have been there. And as you correctly pointed out, you, Tommy, as well as myself, are very high on the Brewers' prospects and what exactly they can do uh, when it comes to the fall here. And and uh, look, we, they still have uh, you know a long season to go to kind of cover that. But we talked about in the American League, you know, how there's you know a couple of divisions where it's really going to be a two-horse race. That's exactly the case, right in the Central. When it comes to the Milwaukee Brewers, the St. Louis Cardinals, the Cardinals will be there as well, too, as uh, St. Louis has played pretty well as far as uh, on the road so far this season in just uh, 23 games on the road. They've looked pretty solid with uh, keeping their record over 500 as well, too. So uh, a division that we uh, rightfully predicted as of right now that the Milwaukee Brewers will be the team probably to beat there. And, of course, in the West – no surprise, the LA Dodgers 
in first place, albeit a small lead as the San Diego Padres a half a game behind right on their tail. The Giants last year's, I want to say surprise, but... They were the darlings, right, Tim? They yep. were the darlings of Major League Baseball last year. Just, they got out to a hot start and, and never looked back. They were just a 100-win team, you know, 102 wins, I think it was. A little tough for Road to Hoe right now with, with the Giants if they've fallen five games back early in the season, but a lot, a lot of a lot of ball left to be played. I, I'm really looking forward to the Dodger-Padre rivalry here because I think what we saw last year was the Padres faded away early in the season, but it looks like right now, and this is without Tatis in the lineup, that they're, they're sticking around. They're, they're, they're not scoring runs at a Dodgers clip, Chris, but scoring enough to, to stay right in there, and I'm really looking forward to this race as well. Yeah, we talked about that uh, stat run differential. I think Pittsburgh Pirates minus 88 run differential, which I think is uh, far and away the worst in Major League Baseball. Well, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers plus 88 as far as run differential, kind of uh, a quality stat for them when it comes to the start of the season. Look, this is a Dodger team that's sitting 14 games over 500 and uh, is, is absolutely stellar at home right now with just the five losses. But I got to say, I mean, you look at this Western division, right, Tim? I mean, come on now. You got, you got, uh, you know, obviously the teams that uh, we expected to contend in Los Angeles, San Diego, and San Francisco, and, and even to some extent, San Francisco, maybe not so much, but, but every team in this division is uh, within two games of 500. The Colorado Rockies are only two games under 500 sitting in the basement of this division, eight games back. And the Arizona Diamondbacks, one game under 500 through 43 games so far this season. So, yeah, they get a little uh, – got a little uh, quality quality squads there in the National League West that uh, are going to be battling out moving forward throughout the summer. Tim Mugglesby, Chris Wynn, Heat Wave Sports here on a Super Sunday night. Last time out as we lead into our last segment, and we're going to talk Stanley Cup playoffs to close the show out here on Heat Wave Sports. Stay tuned. We're back after this. You know who that was? The basketball player. He has LeBron James. He's kind of like the basketball player. Oh, yeah. I think I saw one of his soda commercials. Do you follow sports? Oh, my God. Sports? I love them. Who are your favorite teams? The uh, I like smaller teams, like the not the big leagues. I like the like um, Long Island mediums, the, the acorn pine cones. I haven't heard the of them. The Fire Island penguins. I like the Cincinnati Thunder Wizards. You can stop. The Orlando Blooms. You can stop. Now back to Heat Wave Sports. Here's Tom Barton and Tim Unglesby. Chris, you did some, some media in Orlando. Did you cover the Orlando Blooms? I did not. And when I heard that, I'm like, who is she talking about? Because <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, Tim, I've covered some obscure Orlando sports teams from the Orlando Rage, right? From the XFL. By the way, covered the very first ever xfl game between i want to say it's a lot like it's been uh 20 something years so uh forgive me but i want to say it was the las vegas gladiators against the orlando rage i don't know if there's gladiators was the name but had a chance to cover that game the citrus bowl my friend back in 2000 i believe it's 2000 2000 or 99 one of those uh years but uh, yeah las vegas I, outlaws I right it was a Las yes it was las vegas outlaws against the orlando rage yes i do remember and uh, had a chance to cover the Orlando Miracle as well, too, led by Nikisha Sales, WNBA franchise that was there, I want to say, for three, four years. 
where uh, the uh, head coach was uh, was uh, now her name. Why is why is her name escaping me? She now does television for the Las Vegas Aces. She's doing the TV's. Uh, yeah, Carolyn Peck was the head coach of the uh, Orlando Miracle, and uh, it was uh, who now are the Connecticut Sun. They actually went up to Connecticut and became the Connecticut Sun. So. And you and I could do a podcast on the WNBA, and that would be a, a definite, definite point of interest that I believe Orlando should still have a team. I believe Houston should have a team. I believe the Bay Area should have a team. I believe Nashville should have a team. Canada, you know, Toronto would support it, I think. You know, there's a lot more that could be done with the WNBA, but moving it out of Orlando, and you were in those games, or at those games, was it just a matter that, okay, so they couldn't fill the Orlando Magic Arena, but there's other places they can play in the city of Orlando that would probably would have been more cost-friendly? I think so. I think you're exactly right, Tim, but I don't think that was the frame of mind of the powers that be with the WNBA back then. It wasn't necessarily or with the Orlando Miracle, for that matter, there wasn't the feeling that, you know what, we, yeah, we can go to these small arenas like the New York Liberty have done, right? You've seen that with the Liberty where they moved out of Madison Square Garden. They now play at a smaller arena, I want to say, you know, just off, uh, just uh, outside the Bronx, I believe, where they, you know, it's a six, 7,000-seat arena, much like, you know, which, which has kind of followed suit here in Vegas with the Michelob Ultra Arena. You know, they're not, you know, obviously the, Las Vegas Aces are not playing at T-Mobile where it seats 18,000, you know, 19, 18, 19, 20,000. And so I think that's been kind of the, uh, that's, that, that's a relatively new uh, frame of mind is with the way I'll put it when it comes to the WNBA where they understand that, yeah, it's better to be in a smaller arena where you get, uh, you know, more of a better atmosphere because you're going to get your 5,000, 6,000. 7,000 fans and maybe even a little less, but it's still going to be a great atmosphere and a fun place to come watch a WNBA game. hundred percent agree on that. Attendance, not an issue in the Stanley cup playoffs, three games on the slate today, Chris, and in the nightcap, we saw the Edmonton Oilers take a two, one series lead over the Calgary flames. Game four will also be played in Edmonton on Tuesday night. And the Oilers, a four-goal second period, put this game away pretty early in the in the frame. And, and the, the the funny sticking points in this situation, or the biggest one for me, is hated, known hated uh, enforcer Evander Kane from his time in San Jose with with the Sharks, and, and we all know the history there with the Golden Knights. Chris, he does he, he gets a hat trick in the second period. You know, not known for his scoring prowess. He gets three goals in the second period, and the Oilers take a 2-1 lead in this series. No question, Tim, right? There has been no shortage of goals in this series between the Edmonton Oilers and the Calgary Flames in the Battle of Alberta. You know, game one ended up being a, a NFL field goal fest where uh, I believe the final was 9-6, nine, was nine to six, the final in that game. And then, you know, uh, in this game, obviously you mentioned Evander Kane and uh, no love lost for Evander here in Vegas, of course, with for the VGK faithful. And so the Oilers kind of flex their muscles. This series is going to be a bloodbath. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I mean, obviously the Oilers lead the series by a game. There were only three games in. And then, of course, you know, you had the hat trick. And then what happens near the end of the game? Well, you have a little, you know, as Bill Pito used to say on ESPN2, developing situation as Milan Lukic 
essentially, you know, steamrolls Mike Smith, the Oilers goaltender, and all of a sudden an all-out melee ensues where, you know, there's just, you know, fists are flying all over the place and guys are going going crazy. And so, yeah, it, it created an absolute, uh, you know, kind of old-time hockey feel to this series. And uh, I, quite frankly, don't know who's going to win this series, Tim. I mean, out of, out of all the series, and you saw that, you, and as you mentioned, there's three games today, right? The dogs were barking, my friend, all over the place. If you had all the underdogs in these games, you were sitting pretty. I, you know, fortunately early on had the lightning on the reverse puck line, which was a nice hit at plus 250. The problem for me, though, is that I turned right back around and took the favorite in the Carolina Hurricanes in the game against the Rangers at Madison Square Garden. That did not go well for me. And, of course, I also had the Flames as well, too, in this tilt between Calgary and Edmonton. So, I mean, if you had all the dogs, you were looking good today. But uh, I think what you saw in in, in this situation, you know, obviously minus the Tampa Bay-Florida series, which looks like the Lightning are going to pretty much take it, it's going to be a lot of fun to catch and and see what New York and Carolina get get into. And, of course, this uh, Calgary Flames-Edmonton Oilers tilt and matchup, that should be a lot of fun the rest of the way as well. You brought up the Battle of Florida as the Panthers and the Lightning matched up in Game 3 in Tampa. And the President's Trophy jinx, Chris, it's, it's looming large still. Panthers' best record in the National Hockey League this season. And you said they find themselves essentially at the exit door. And Tampa is just one good push away from sending him right into the post postseason uh, exit and out to the golf courses, as they always like to talk about. 5-1 win today for the Lightning at home. Game four will also be in Tampa in an elimination game. And if we know anything about Tampa in the last two years, Chris, since they are the defending back-to-back champions in the NHL, the last two years, Tampa at home in the playoffs, you don't beat them, and you don't be, beat a guy named by the name of Andre Vasilevsky, 34 saves today. They um, just, they've shut down this high-powered Florida offense. Yeah, there's no question that, you know, Florida Panthers, yeah, it's all fine and great and dandy, right, when you're the President's Trophy winners. But you're going up against the likes of the Tampa Bay Lightning, who are two-time defending Stanley Cup champions. They have, and and by the way, I I was on the show this morning, right, with with Brian and Mags and the guys, and uh, Mags brought up a great point. John Cooper, is the best coach in the NHL. All right. It's not. And, and quite frankly, I don't think it's necessarily even that close right now. I mean, he is the best coach in hockey. This is a Tampa Bay lightning team. You just talked about, you mentioned the guys, right? Kucherov. You're talking about Vasilevsky. You're talking about uh, even, even, you know, Steven Stamkos, you know, Kucherov and Stamkos both, you know, figured in the scoring, particularly in the third period in this game here today. Uh, even even guys are turning back the clock, right? Like Corey Perry, you got uh, you know absolutely guys contributing like Ryan McD- Ryan McDonough and uh, and and some others as well too. Ross Col- Ross Colton and uh, Palat come to mind as well too. And this is all without Braden Point. It's all without Braden Point as well too. So this is a Tampa Bay team I think that is ultra dangerous moving forward, and they're clearly going to win this series, which uh, much to the dismay of the Florida Panthers faithful down there. Uh, and look, uh, you know, full disclosure, I mean, it's Florida. I mean, I, I don't know, uh, you know, how hardcore the fan base is when you're talking about uh, the likes of uh, South Florida and 
and hockey, uh, you know, call me insensitive, call me just, you know, call me, uh, you know, just with a chip on my shoulder, but I'm just not, uh, I'm not sold on, uh, you know, Florida Panther mania down there, uh, in Boca Raton and West Palm beach and, uh, and sunrise Florida. But that being said, I mean, they're, they're about to go by the wayside much to the, you know, uh, much in the same way as the Toronto Maple Leafs did. And, uh, the Maple Leafs faithful, not very happy about that either, but, uh, this is a lightning team. I think that, uh, clearly should be the favorite and probably will be, uh, regardless of what happens in the other series, uh, coming out of the East when it comes to the Stanley cup finals. And the morning matchup was the Canes and the Rangers in Madison Square Garden. This has been a great uh, defensive. Uh, I would say it's been okay. It's been a low-scoring series, no doubt. And right, a lot goes to the credit to the goalies and Igor there for the Rangers and Ranta for Carolina. And Carolina, we already knew best defensive hockey team during the regular season. They've they've maintained that. This was a must-win for Gerard Gallant and the Rangers. And they get it done, Chris. They a two-one game heading to the third. They get the insurance goal to get the three-one win. And now they're down two to one. But game four will also be in Madison Square Garden on Tuesday. Yeah, and this is a. By the way, you, we, this is a Carolina Hurricanes team where, you know, they, look, they, they haven't exactly been lightning the lamp a, across the board big time, right? And th- what really bit them in the backside today, though, was the power play. I mean, they just could not get anything going. When it, with respect to special teams at all, you know, in this hockey game. And, I mean, I, I kept, uh, as someone who had Carolina and had a dog in the fight, actually, you know, I kept thinking, okay, when can this Carolina team finally get things going offensively, right? When can you finally get it going? And they just were never able to do it. And, uh, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, the the uh, all the uh, fisticuffs and all the uh, rough stuff that was going on in that Calgary-Edmonton series. Well, they had, they had the same kind of situation here as, uh, you know, New York Rangers coach Gerard Gallant was was going off on uh, some of the players over there at Carolina, as uh, you know, and he said he wasn't happy with the uh, BS at the end of the game that they initiated, uh, you know, after the Rangers three one win, where uh, the buzzer sounded right to end the game, and you had Max Domi essentially giving uh, Ryan Lindgren a cross check in New York zone, and Lindgren, Lindgren responded with uh, with a whack to Domi. And then all of a sudden, uh, everybody started uh, hopping on the ice together, and uh, you had a little wrestling match between Lindgren and Domi uh, to uh, to kind of cap off this game. So it adds a little, adds a little juice, Tim, right, to uh, this matchup moving forward. As uh, you know, meanwhile at the benches, you could see Gallant yelling at uh, defenseman Tony D'Angelo as well too, as the players left the ice. So so funny, the the Rangers get the win, but you had you know you had you had Turk all just fired up on the bench. As uh, he's walking off after the victory, and uh, high five and uh, all all the folks there from uh, the New York organization. So that was that was uh, that was just kind of fun to kind of see there at the end of the game. Look, you and I have made no, we haven't tried to hide the fact that the Gerard Gallant firing here in Vegas. I know it's old news, but we at the time it was ridiculous. It It was ridiculous. Yeah, and it really look at it years later, what it's done. Am I saying that Vegas didn't make the playoffs because Gerard Gallant was the coach? No, I'm not saying that, but it seems to be um, a pattern that's is building itself. But it also seems to be that he was the right guy at the time, and they just gave up on him too early. 
Well, I think it's an indictment of the Vegas Golden Knights hockey brass, right, Tim? I mean, that's what I think it is. I mean, it's essentially, you know, and I, I, I don't know if we're going to go down this road, but we're talking about the Vegas Golden Knights and the coaching situation. But it, it essentially, Pete DeBoer, it was a, it was a failure, right? It was it was a it was a mistake that uh, that that they brought Pete in because he was not able to get it done. And this is someone who who says, look, I think Pete DeBoer is a good coach. Okay, I don't think he's a bad coach. I just think that it just wasn't necessarily the right fit for this team at this time. And, you know, because of that whole – and I thought that whole scenario was completely preposterous, right? I thought I thought Gerard Gallant got got the ultimate shaft, which, you know, was kind of ironic given that it was the same kind of situation with him with the Florida Panthers, right, where, where it was kind of – he was unceremoniously disposed of there. And so, kind of fast forwarding to now, and I think that uh, Gerard Gallant, it's a, I, there's a lot of you know fans of Turk out there as a coach that are, are really rooting for the Rangers, right, and, and want the Rangers to kind of pull through here and 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 it be able to have some success here in the Stanley Cup playoffs because of the way that he was treated in Vegas, the way that he was treated in Florida with the Panthers, and and. I think there's a lot of a lot of fans out there that would love to see him be able to stick it to everybody and say, hey, you know, uh, and and prove that he is a guy that can that can get it done, and uh, he was a guy that did get it done in, in Vegas. I mean, think about that. I mean, it's, I mean, it's just I mean, I could go on a rant for days, Tim, but like, this is a, v, a Vegas Golden Knights franchise that is going to be looking for their third head coach in six seasons, right? Essentially, third head coach in five seasons, really. If you want to, if you want to get technical about it, and you know that's to me that's completely ridiculous. When you went to the Stanley Cup Final in your first season in existence, right? And you were, and by the way, you went to the playoffs every year that Gerard Gallant was a coach here. Look, I get it. Everyone wants to dive into the, you know, uh, you know the the personality conflicts that he might have had with McPhee and with McCrimmon and, and the likes. Whatever, I get it. But just from a optic standpoint and just taking a look look back at that and seeing what he was able to do in Vegas and now what he's able to do in New York with the Rangers. I mean, it just to me, it's just an indictment again on the Vegas Golden Knights upper management. And and, and it was one of the mistakes of the of the mistakes that there's been a number of them that the Vegas Golden Knights brass has made. They made some good moves. Don't get me wrong. They made some good moves. But they've also made some mistakes, and one of those was jettisoning, you know, jettisoning uh, Gerard Gallant out of town. Got about three minutes to go, Chris. Your thoughts on the next head coach for the Vegas Knights? Yeah, so it's a, a lot of fun to kind of look at this because there's literally a number of prospects, right? There's a, there's a number of guys that could fit the bill here, and we, we uh, you know, a lot of us across the Vegas media and even fans too across social media have talked about those names. Whether it's Rick Tockett, obviously, whether it's Joel Quinville, whether it's Barry Trotz, whether it's John Tortorella, you know, whether it's Claude Julian, you know, I mean, there's there's been a number of names mentioned, and me, my own humble opinion, Tim, I think it's gonna be Rick Tockett. I really do. I think it's gonna be Rick Tockett, despite the fact that you have the off-the-ice stuff going on with Rick regarding, you know, sports gaming and uh, and 
the uh, gambling situation and him coming to Vegas, that makes it kind of uh, dicey to say the least, right? That you're that he's going to be the guy. But with respect to the likes of Barry Trotz, I don't think Barry Trotz from a philosophical standpoint, right? And from a personnel standpoint with the Vegas Golden Knights, the, the type of teams they have, I don't necessarily think that Barry Trotz is the right fit. Although I think, you know, I think a lot of people in, in, in the Vegas Golden Knights management, hockey people, are, are downplaying the firing of Pete DeBoer connection with Barry Trotz being available in New York. I thought there, I think there's something to that. I think there's something to that where Vegas, where where Kelly McCrimmon thought to himself, you know what? Now that Lou Lamarillo with the Islanders made this mistake, and I think he made a mistake, one of the few that he's made, but he's made a mistake letting go of Barry Trotz. I think that Vegas had this idea in their head where they're like, you know what? We think that uh, this might be a good fit where Barry can come here to Vegas, and yet. I don't think there was enough analysis done. I think that there wasn't enough consideration that, you know, from a personnel standpoint, from a style of play standpoint, Barry's not necessarily the right guy. So to me, it should, I think it's going to be Rick Tockett. That's my personal opinion, Tim. What do you think about as far as the coaches and who could come in here? Yeah, that, I was going Rick Tockett as well. He just seems like a guy that's uh, fits the mold a little bit better for McPhee, McCrimmon, and, and probably Foley, who supposedly is going to be involved in, in these day to day operations a little bit more. The other guys look just a lot of, you could almost say it's the same basketball theory. It's just a lot of retreads. So if you're not gonna take a chance on a young upcoming coach, then I kinda like the talking fit as well. But we'll see. I think it'll be done here in the next couple of weeks. So we'll see what happens. But as as we wrap it up, Chris, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Let everybody know about where they can find Chris Wynn. Yeah, you can find me on social media at Christian Wynn on Twitter. You can find me at CWIN77 on Instagram, as well as uh, Christian WN on Facebook. Always looking for, for new for new Facebook friends and uh, social media friends. And as you know, Tim, always uh, a joy for me to get a chance to jump on with yourself and, and with Tommy and with the crew here at Heatwave Sports. And, uh, yeah, you can find me all over the dial, too, still rolling. Uh, I'm over uh, occasionally on uh, Brian Shapiro's show over on Pushing the Limits on KSHP. A lot of times filling in for Kent Thompson over on SportsX Radio on KDWN and uh, and occasionally filling in with uh, our guy, Brian Feldman, and as well as, uh, you know, Chris Magnum Chapman and the guys on uh, Out of Line in the mornings, too, on Sunday mornings here on Fox Sports Radio in Las Vegas. So still all over the, over the dial, still loving a chance to get out there and cover sports left and right and looking forward to hanging with my guy Tim Oglesby for some Las Vegas Aces games this year, baby, because uh, – they really have a good shot, Tim. I'm telling you, they really have a good shot to capture that first ever major professional championship for Las Vegas. Chris, always a pleasure, my man. We'll, we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Have a great week, Tim. And uh, to all the listeners out there, appreciate you spending some Sunday night with us. For Chris Wynn, for Ryan back in the studio, Tim Munglesby. Have a great sports week. Again, we're off next week, but we'll talk to you in two weeks' time right here on Fox Sports Radio, 98.9 FM, 1340 AM. It's Heat Wave Sports. Have a good one.